Welcome to Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness. Hey, Hera. Such a pleasure to be here with you today. My name is Madhu. Easy way to remember is like, don't touch Madhu. And I am a coach for individuals who are successful in the wellness space. So those who improve the quality of life of other individuals, what I do is help them learn how to control their mind with our monk mindset method, as well as grow their business in a more sustainable conscious format with our conscious closing systems. Do you mind me asking how old you are? Because you look rather young. Yes, I turn 16 next week. now. Um, <laughs> I wish sometimes. I'm 28. You turned 28, but you were a monk for how long? Oh, about five years or so, but I did that when I turned 18. So I got a little head start there. Yeah. And so what drove you to that? Well, you're telling me most 18-year-old boys don't <laughs> want to become a celibate monk and move to India? I don't know any. Neither do I. <laughs> Neither do I. Well, the short version is that growing up, I had such an inkling towards philosophy and theology and understanding just what am I perceiving outside of myself? I knew those two things existed. I was like, okay. I think, therefore, I am. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I know I'm a unit of consciousness. The fact that I can even doubt proves that I'm a unit of consciousness. And there's different terminology one might give from a spirit to a soul to whatever, unit of consciousness. And I knew that there's something outside and outside of myself. And if I said to someone, hey, what is that thing? We would both see the same thing and be able to say it's the same thing. So I was like, okay, there's also something real happening outside of me. And I want to understand that. And I tried mostly in high school, trying to explore different philosophies and theologies. And I always found myself still wanting more and more. Because I would get to a certain part and it'd either be like, oh, I don't have an answer for you. Or it would be like, you ask too many questions. And I'm like, no such thing. (laughs) Don't believe in that. And so I started to, when I was 16 years old, I read a book called the Bhagavad Gita. Many listeners here might be familiar with it. It's just one of the oldest books on yoga, if you will, and specifically the the practice, the metaphysical practice of yoga, not so much the physical asanas and postures. And I read that and it started talking about principles of self that I just started blowing my mind. Basic understanding of who am I as a living soul that's eternal, blissful, and full of knowledge, and that there's a relationship with matter and you are a unit of consciousness within a temporary body for a little bit. Of time. Anyway, it's teaching all these things that I had been searching so much for And so I started studying deeper into this ancient Vedic text or yoga text from India. And for the sake of a bad example, I drank the Kool-Aid and I was like, okay, this is great. And I was like, I want to learn more. So I started visiting different types of temples. And when I was 17, I was like, I'm becoming a monk. I want to do that. But no one let me join because I was a minor. (laughs) (laughs) And so finally on my 18th birthday, I was in college. I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. And I was like, well... Let's shave my head, put on some orange robes and uh, go move to India and live in a monastery. Do they just let anybody in? No, there's a whole pre-qualifying. I mean, there's definitely some places that let everyone in, but those were not the places I was so inclined to spend some yeah. time and live at. Specifically, the ashrams or the monasteries that I went and spent some time at. It's not like a whole screening where you have to like fill out a bunch of pay, you know, but it's like you go there and it's very much if they have the capacity and you are a good fit, then... Cool. And, you know, it's kind of a gentle screening process. So not to take anything away from how you are and who you are, but were your parents into it? And maybe it had nothing to do with your parents, but did it have anything to do with your parents? It did. I was raised in a household of, you know, my parents are 
spiritualists and they're very much interested in Eastern philosophies, theologies. But, you know, growing up in that, I was like, Ugh. Uh, that's my parents do that. So, so that's why I went so much into kind of like Western philosophy, Western theology, I mean, Abrahamic theology, if you will, and uh, trying to understand that. And so eventually when I was 16, actually, the reason I read the Bhagavad Gita is my father said, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you read the uh. Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> and I said, I could, you know, I could really use that money. And then when I read it, I went, I finally went, oh, this is why you guys talk about this weird stuff. Kind of sunk in my brain. I was like, oh, this isn't woo woo. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh, this is like system. And I was like, this is more systematic than the other stuff I've been reading. Like no one even gave me this stuff to read. And that's where it started to transform. So unlike many others that I've met in the world that took to a monastic lifestyle, my parents were like thrilled. I mean, my mom missed me and I missed her. And my dad, too, of course, but he was a little more like, get out of here, kid, you got it. <laughs> and I missed them and they missed me, but we'd still speak regularly. And uh, they were they were actually quite happy with my choices because they, they also saw the difference. They saw as I started practicing these, specifically the practice of a bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of love and devotion. Certain ancient practices there, they saw the transformation happen. I went from like kind of a derpy, like rebellious, cynical kid to starting to become slightly less. <laughs> it took me till my mid forties, I'm in my mid fifties to believe that I was in control of my thoughts you know, well, whatever happened to me happened to me. And what can I do about that? But finally sunk in. So somebody who is just getting on the path, what can somebody who's trying to elevate their life do instead of, you know, go joining a monastery? Yeah. The idea is to share that so people don't have to go do that. I have a framework for what I developed called the monk mindset method, which is pretty much just a way that people can achieve their goals in a sustainable fashion that doesn't feel overwhelming or stressful. And in a way that's, it's conscious, it's deliberate, it's intentional. It's with an integrity to high aligned values. And specifically what that consists of is let's, we can break it into four steps. And the first step is getting really clear on what somebody actually wants in life. And that means getting really expansive, not just what you think you can have mm. or what you think might be available, but like, what is it actually that you do want? And if we ask ourselves that question enough, we're ultimately going to want to be free from suffering. And we're ultimately going to want to be free from the mental condition. We're going to want to be free from isolation. There's certain things that we get afflicted by in the human condition that anyone who sits for a long enough time is going to have certain desires arise. But then even we can take it down into the minute in terms of, you know, what type of relationships you want, what type of health you want, what type of spiritual practice that you want, what type of career and purpose do you want? And just starting there, and for most people, this is quite difficult to make a list, but I encourage just list all the things that you want and make a long list of those. And then the second step from there, once you've actually identified what is it that I want to do with my life, what direction do I actually want to go in? Then what you do is you turn it into a, a present tense, what I call a claim. What that looks like is take your desire and identify the end result or the destination. An example might be, people might say, oh, I want to work out five times a week. But that's actually not the desire. They want to work out for what purpose? I want to lose some weight. Is that the actual reason? No, I want to feel more comfortable in my body. I want to have more mental clarity, more sustainable energy. It's like if we keep just, we're going to identify like what exactly is the destination you want? Okay, I want peak physical condition, which means, I mean, I'll just give you an example. Let's say someone's like, I want this percent body fat with this, whatever it might look like. And I want sustainable energy levels, which looks like this and get really clear with those and then identify them in the present, which might look like, Instead of saying, you know, I want 
to work out five times a week. Really the destination, the claim is I feel comfortable and strong in my body Mm. with a clear, steady, focused mind. Like what exactly that is. And then once you have that, once you have that claim, the third step from there is what are the behaviors that if you were to consistently commit to on a daily basis will provide you that thing that you're claiming? So one day when you say it's actually going to be true, figure out what the destination is and then ask yourself, what would I do every single day so that at some point in my life, maybe in a month, maybe in a year, maybe in 10 years, who cares? It's going to happen. It will happen. And then once you've done that, then the last step there is ideal schedule. It's like, what would your life need to look like so you could fit in all those things? Everything needs to get done in your life. And if you just make a plan, all you need to do is be consistent on it. And then there's a little step like four and a half to what's going to stop you from being consistent. And there's a whole protocol we have around how to stop stopping per se. But uh, the idea is if you just identify what you want, figure out what the destination of that looks like, the actual end goal, figure out what behaviors are necessary for you to actually get that at some point and then put it into a little schedule, put it in your little notebook so that you can actually be consistent with it. People can achieve the goals that they want. The idea of the podcast is that, you know, we all go through adversity and we don't have to suffer. We don't have to stay there. Not that you have to have had any, but you didn't just wake up successful. I still consider myself very fortunate. I think that when I look objectively in this world, the challenges and struggles that I've gone through, though for myself, they were unbearable when going through, I, I must say I'm ultimately grateful for the support I've had to go through them. Everything from the reason I became a monk, it was just life's hard. I remember being in high school, I graduated high school when I was 16, not because I was so smart, but I was smart enough to, I was like, what's the least I have to do to graduate, get the hair out of this place? So I was like, okay, this is the least amount of requirements I need. All right, I'll squeeze in a couple extra and then be done with this place. And I remember being in high school, being in college, I went right into college after that. And it seemed like the goal of life for so many others was just like to maintain until you die. And I was like, that sucks. And even my life, like I have very loving parents. I was very antisocial, but I still had some people who were nice and kind to me and whatnot. And, and I always thought to myself, man, if I'm in such a blessed situation, we never went without per se. We, we, we were paycheck to paycheck. My parents just really did their best to support a life for myself and the other, you know, there's seven of us siblings. So they crushed it in my book. You know, it was tough. It was week to week, but I, like, I was always fed. And so if I, in being in one of the more fortunate situations of people I knew, if I was suffering as much as I did, mm. like what must it be like for others? That, this, this is what used to go through my mind. I was diagnosed with ADHD. AD, it was ADD when I was younger than ADHD and then I have anxiety, got depressed. And so I just had this slew of like labels. I was like, okay. And finally got to the point where I go, we got, you got to take this medicine, you got to take that medicine. And I remember being like, I guess I'm broken. I got to take this medicine. And, you know, as a young man thinking, this sucks. Life's hard. I don't want to do this. And so that's what really impelled me to like, I don't want just material stuff. There's a guarantee that that's going to be taken from us. So I want to nourish myself on the level of the self, that, that which transmigrates even after, after death. And the way I always like to explain reincarnation, it's very simple. Every seven years, every cell in our body is regenerated. So every seven years, you've taken on new carne, you've reincarnated. So it only makes sense that if our full experience of life has been awareness, even though the body was changing and the mind was changing, the you, the same you that was 
remembers being a five-year-old body, 10-year-old body, 15, et cetera. Uh, that you, that real you, that spirit, that soul, that unit of consciousness, I'd rather invest in nourishing myself on that level because if I can't take anything with me, it would be that. There's a bunch of different indications, everything from that to getting chronic illness, to getting an autoimmune disease. To, I mean, tons of different reversals that I experienced. But ultimately, probably the biggest suffering is always caused from the mind. Do you suffer from anxiety today? I think anyone who lives in this world that says that I never experienced any form of anxiety or negative emotions, I think they're kind of fooling themselves to a certain degree. Rather, what I have is a set of tools from my incredible, incredible teachers that have been so kind to me for how to manage anxiety. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that these things are fixed. I don't believe that it's like, you just change this. I'm never depressed ever again. I'm never this, you know. Oh, my ADHD is gone or, you know, whatever terms we might want to give it. Uh, I'm a firm believer of the idea of learning how to manage it and work with it in such a way that you can still engage your psychophysical nature and tendencies, but in a direction that they don't become debilitating, you can actually use them in a way that's going to propel you in a positive direction. What kind of tools do you have for that? I'm a big believer in that most anxiety. So not only does it come from the mind, but we're talking about, I mean, it exclusively comes from the mind actually. Because even if we're talking about like physical pains and illnesses, still, even though the brain itself doesn't feel pain, it is indicating the source of pain. So right off the bat, we know suffering is an inside job. No one can make me suffer to the extent that I say, oh, you've caused me pain. You've caused me anxiety. You've caused me sad, whatever it might be. We now have no control. We cannot do anything with that information. As long as we first take that step of responsibility, like, okay, I am in control of my thoughts, minds, and emotion, and I might not be in full control. I might not be in a lot of control. I might only be in a little control, but still that radical self-responsibility is always the first step of saying, I am in control. It's my mind that's reacting. Someone said something that freaked me out, but if they said the same thing to four other people, they could have had no response. Therefore, okay, what does that mean? This is my thing. Mm -hmm. And your mind wants to give it away, but then it's just like, you're just miserable. You're like this person caused it to me. Wah. Like, what can you do now? Yeah. You can't do anything. So rather radical self-responsibility, I'm in control. I am the one who can control my mind and push myself in the direction that I want. Step number two is philosophy of self helps. Ancient yoga or Vedic perspective is that as a soul, as a unit of consciousness, we are eternal, blissful, and full of knowledge. And what that means is that everything that we need in life is not only within, but it's also provided without from our divine source, which in simple terms just means the highest of all high powers. What is the highest of all high powers? Knowing that according to this ancient yoga perspective, ancient Vedic perspective, is that we, they call what's, what's called the triple OG, at least no one actually calls that. That's my terminology, but you have omniscient, omnibenevolent, and omnipotent, which means the divine source of existence is all powerful, all loving, and all knowing, which functionally means that would an all loving source want to provide me with everything I need at any given time to move in a direction of transcendence and actual peace? Yes, an all good, like an all loving, good source would want that. Could an all powerful source do that? Yep, all powerful. They can make it work. Would an all-knowing source know exactly what to give me exactly when I need to get it in order to provide me an opportunity to move in that direction? Absolutely. What a relief. So this is what I mean by step number two, having a good philosophy to fall back on. Like, oh yeah, 
I'm a unit of consciousness. Death actually doesn't have to be so scary. Like suffering doesn't have to be so scary because they're eminent. They're guaranteed. So rather, as opposed to fighting things that are certain, let me work with these currents of nature and knowing that ultimately, like the squirrels are being taken care of, the birds are being taken care of, I'm going to be taken care of too. And then the third step is just the practice of keeping that fresh in the mind on a regular basis of like always coming back to faith over fear because they're both choices and, and just a matter of like actually choosing that faith over fear. So anyway, I would say those are the three that can sustainably get one out of the span or the kind of repetition of anxiety. I really appreciate you saying that death is just part of life. It's going to happen. It doesn't have to be scary. It's very hard to have this conversation with people. Kudos to you for getting there so early. Our culture promotes this kind of hiding death. I mean, I didn't realize this until I'd lived in India, but also I traveled pretty extensively as a monk and then even after. And I would travel different cultures. And I mean, this sounds crazy to Western mind, but you know, you'll be just driving past a crematorium or walking past and you're like, you could just like go in and see a crematorium. And like, and, and it, they are not hiding it. If anything, they're making it like really accessible. Yeah. Because it's just the reality of life. Whereas here, it's like no one sees death. Even if you ever do see a body where the soul has left, as we call it, death, when you see the body, still the, the makeup on it, just to like hide all the symptoms of death, do put a bunch of effort behind it, put it, everything behind walls so no one sees the process. Even when somebody is getting old, hide that. If you can hide old age, if you can hide disease too behind all these walls that no one ever sees it, if you can hide death, then what happens is people start to live in this illusion like, oh yeah, maybe it won't happen to me. Right. I won't think about it until it happens. Then, then it happens. You're like, why didn't I think about this my whole life? My mother passed away when I was 18 and she was 46 and her mother was 46. So I have been thinking about it my whole life, mm. but I'm so at peace with it. And I'm glad I have. I also, I take pictures of people at the end of life on a volunteer basis. And that has really helped me witness it and be okay with it and know that it is sad and it's, there's grief, but we don't have to suffer with the loss because it is what's going to happen. We're all going to die. Really appreciate that you said all that. Yeah, I couldn't have said it more eloquently than you just did. And it's uh, mentioned in this ancient yoga literature, the wisdom literature, that just as one does not mourn the rising or the setting of the sun, but one simply accepts that that's just the reality. Like, it just is. Mm -hmm. There's no peace that can be found in trying to reject that which is certain, like the rising or the setting of the sun. And as you so well express it, the idea of coming to terms with the acceptance is there, but then also coming to terms of like the peacefulness of like, oh yeah, this is how it goes. And also coming back to having a helpful philosophy of like, okay, the soul is either eternal or it's not eternal. Mm -hmm. Like the unit of consciousness, when it leaves the body, which we call death, it's either that that consciousness is forever done and gone forever, or it's eternal and it goes on. And so the idea is we don't know either way. No one's going to ever be able to pull out in a scientific article and say, hey, we got a microscope. We figured <laughs> it out. There are dozens and dozens of stories of reincarnation nowadays where you get like a three-year-old in Germany that speaks Spanish and tell you about how they die. I mean, so there is a lot of proof. Don't get me wrong, but I mean to say, right. the idea being if I had to choose between both, but I voluntarily chose the idea that at the end of death, everything is gone for forever. If I could choose eternal life, it's just like, it's a bad bargain. I just went through a cancer scare. And so I got to test out my, am I okay with death? And 
still not knowing whether there's a, a forever in some way or not, I still found peace in that I had a good life. And even if I don't go on in some way, that was okay. But also because my mother passed away so long ago and I have felt her presence, mm. I feel like in some way I'll be important still to the people I'm important to. And I wish we talked about it more. So thank you for bringing it up. You're very welcome. And thank you for creating such a helpful platform for us to actually have these discussions. I'm always grateful for those like yourself who take all the time and energy and effort to create platforms like this so we can actually have this discussion. I suffered for so long as a victim of whatever was happening to me. And because I have two young daughters, 24 and 28, my purpose is to show them or people that you don't have to suffer. You can rise above whatever you've gone through. That's, I guess, the idea. We're talking a lot about death as well as that which is inevitable. And to contrast that, I think I'd like to share one meditation per se mm -hmm. that I could be thinks helpful for life. You know, so it's like, okay, accepting death is there, but what do we do? Do we just like watch the clock run out as we go through or do we do something magical? And I am a firm believer in this concept that every single living entity in this world has a very unique and special gift. And how do I know that? Because they are unlike any other living entity that will ever live out of the endless, countless, innumerable living. I mean, just in this one world, there's more living entities, living entities than one can count from human beings to various types of species of life. I mean, one could spend their whole lifetime trying to count them all. And that's just one earth. And what to speak of if you believe that the idea that there's unlimited cosmos. And so you as a unique living entity have an intrinsic value, have a unique set of gifts that can improve the quality of lives of others. I believe it's an obligation for us to contribute in some way or another in the mood of service to improving the quality of lives of others. And one might say, I don't know anything about any, I haven't learned anything about health, anything about mindset, anything about I, whatever ways one can improve their quality of life. But here's the cool thing. All you need to do is ask yourself, what is one thing that somebody's helped me with or that I've helped myself by overcoming? And how could I find somebody who is in that situation where I was one year, five year, 10, 20, 40 years ago, whatever it might be. How can I find somebody who is in a situation that I was in that I was able to overcome and help them move in the direction of overcoming that? This service-based mindset is what's going to provide someone an actual sense of satisfaction a sense of fulfillment because the idea of just taking, no one actually is happy. That's why when they, they've done studies around the happiest people in the world, and as if counterintuitive, it's mind boggling, but the happiest people in the world were new mamas. You just give, give, give to baby. How is that the happiest person? It's because true happiness comes from contribution and service as opposed to taking. Taking never provides satisfaction, whereas giving, service, contribution always improves one's own positive mental state. What to speak of a sense of purpose and satisfaction? So contrasting the conception of death and like, yep, just learn to cool is also like how to really feel contentment and fulfillment in this life. And that is ask yourself, how can I be of service? What is my purpose? How can I contribute according to my nature, my purpose? If you figure out how do I just simply improve the quality of life of others in whatever small, tiny way I can or big, that's the easiest and most efficient and most sustainable way to create a happy life worth living. Somebody just asked me today on a scale of one to 10, how happy am I? And I said, 9.75. And she said, what's your secret? And I said, 
I'm doing what I love. I have a good marriage and I have great sex. That covers it. The needs of life are there, right? I'm just focused on on right now. And that's why I'm happy. That's what I think anyway. Yeah. Well, because anxiety is when you're thinking about the future mm -hmm. and uh, depression is when you're thinking about the past. And also, like you said, I, I am living in my purpose and I'm just giving. Beneath Your Beautiful is a calling. I really want others to know they don't have to suffer. Thank you again for this platform. I don't believe that most of us know what it takes to keep the lights on for podcasts like this. And so I'm just so appreciative for you putting the time, energy, effort, mental space for allowing opportunities like this to exist. And I feel grateful. And we got tons of resources that were, they work. And so we just want to help. And if you like it, give it to someone else. <laughs> Thanks so much. I really appreciated this. You exceeded my expectations. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Beneath Your Beautiful, hosted by Hara Allison. And thank you for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned.